Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, before we get started with the show, I wanted to quickly remind people about our new anthology of speculative fiction about the future of work called Working Futures. Uh, we talked with some of the authors recently on the podcast, but I wanted to remind listeners in case they hadn't yet checked out the book. Uh, we've got 14 amazing stories in the collection. They're just really great, and we've been getting some great reviews on them with people saying that the stories have really made them think uh, about different things and about what the future might be like. Um, it's we're we're really really happy and and proud of of the stories in the book, uh, and we think that you'll really really enjoy them. Uh, so please please check it out. Uh, you can find it by going to Amazon and searching for Working Futures, or you can go to uh, our website about it, which is Working Futures, which is uh, Working Future. Uh, and dot .es at the end. Uh, so if you were to spell working futures and then move a period two spots uh, to the left, uh, <laughs> you'll get to the web page uh, and check it out or just find it on Amazon. It's easy enough. Uh, and uh, we know that you'll enjoy it. So please, please check it out. Thanks. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bring in precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the for pulling the wall on us, painting and taking on all the plates and paint and trolls. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the tech. For many, many years on Tector, we've talked about how misleading it is to call copyright and patents intellectual property. Uh, it's misleading in so many different ways, and yet the reference to property uh, as in part of as the part of intellectual property is used frequently to defend uh, all all sorts of aspects of both copyright and patents that mm, I, I think personally don't necessarily make much sense. Uh, chief among these is the idea that, that infringement of copyright and patents is somehow theft. Uh, this is not to say that infringement is okay, uh, but it is clearly incorrect to call it theft in the traditional sense, given that in a normal theft, of, you know, theft of property, whoever had the original property no longer has it. Uh, that is, something is missing, which I think is kind of a key element of theft. Uh, yet in copyright or patent infringement, that is almost never the case. And instead, you have something that has been copied, uh, meaning that another version was made, that there is now more in the world in some sense. Or, uh, as is often the case in patents, you have independent invention. Nothing was copied and nothing went missing. Um, so it's difficult to refer to that as theft, I think. Uh, Daniel Takish and Brink Lindsay from the Niskanen Center, which is a DC think tank that does really excellent work on a variety of different subjects, recently released a paper entitled Why Intellectual Property is a Misnomer uh, that went deep on a variety of different explorations of why it's really improper to use the phrase intellectual property. Uh, it's a really great paper. We'll link to it in the show notes, and it is highly recommended if you're interested in these things. So uh, today on the podcast, we have Daniel to talk about it. So uh, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Sure. Uh, so let's start with the 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 most obvious of questions, what, what inspired you to tackle this particular subject? Um, so I guess to begin, uh, I manage the Captured Economy Project at the Niskanen Center. Uh, it is based on a book that was written in 2017 um, by Brink Lindsay and Stephen Tellis. Um, then uh, that spun off into a project which I manage. And it, the essential theme of the Captured Economy Project is it deals with uh, rent-seeking instances where government intervenes, which of course bothers those on the political right, at least on economic issues, in a way that has the effect of slowing growth and more importantly redistributing wealth upwards, uh, which is a priority of the left. The Captured Economy Project covers um, a number of different policy areas. We do zoning, occupation. Uh, occupational licensure, financial regulation, uh, and the big one is intellectual property, which seems sort of surprising. Uh, they mention this in the book, that it's sort of a surprising addition to the rogues gallery. Uh, but digging further into the issue, uh, you see that our current system, in addition to producing um, tremendous excesses in terms of wealth concentration and just the amount of money uh, that goes into the development of products, um, ostensibly in, you know, in the guise of the subsidy or in protecting uh, what we would consider to be property rights or what some to be considered property rights. Um, and, and 
the justifications for it, they simply do not hold. Uh, and part of me um, was very interested in, in uh, a theoretical question. You know, it started almost as just an academic exercise, something that interested me. It's like, oh, this this is not property. The 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 the, the status that many on the political right give it uh, as property, it just doesn't hold. And that turned into this paper when Brink and I realized that this isn't just um, an interesting debate uh, among you know the the political right. You know, Good Lockians, Reason Magazine, in their debate <laughs> issue a while ago had is intellectual property property, property. Um, but it's a very important uh, part of the rhetoric surrounding intellectual property. You have many people um, going around saying, you know, when you do it, you're stealing. We all remember uh, from, I guess it was the 90s, those advertisements you would see alongside the FBI warning, you know, you, you wouldn't break into somebody's house and steal their TV, so you wouldn't right. illegally copy this video. So it's, it's an idea that is vastly um, more important than I initially realized. And so in addition to discussing the policy merits of intellectual property, uh, or, or rather the significant shortcomings of intellectual property as a question of public policy, I think it's important to step back and view uh, it not only as you are not, um, it, rather that it is not property, but in fact it represents a significant infringement um, on individual liberty in general uh, and often what are proper, physical property rights is traditionally understood it actively violates those. Yeah, and, and that's something that's always interested me, the idea that you know the, the people who defend copyright as intellectual property, copyright in particular, um, as intellectual property, seem to, and, and, and then focus very much on the property rights aspect of it, seem to um, not want to discuss how it actually uh, harms other kinds of property rights. You know, like, you know, if I've bought something, I should be able to do what I want with it, including reselling it or modifying it or changing it in some way. And yet, you know, when that violates copyright law, suddenly the, the copyright is property people suddenly don't care about my property rights anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which, exactly. You know, I've always found that a little bit, you know, I don't know. Uh, telling, I guess, is, is the actual word I want to use. <laughs> yeah, I've always found it quite curious. The example um, I was first exposed to was, say, you have all the raw materials necessary to make the mousetrap. This is a frequent uh -huh. example that comes up. Uh, and you acquired them either through locking and appropriation. You went out into the wilderness and, and took it. Uh, or you acquired it through voluntary exchange. So it is unquestionably your property. But the moment that you decide to assemble it, into uh, something that is protected by a patent. Uh, and then certainly, if you try to go and sell it, you have somehow violated somebody else's property rights. You know, right. all of the sudden, thanks to this, this creature of law, this we prefer the term um, intellectual monopoly, if, if they, I think it, it uh, much better describes the institution, but thanks to the magic of intellectual monopoly, um, the sum of your parts have become someone else's whole. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's an interesting space. I mean, there's, uh, there are a bunch of different directions we can go here because, because, and I could talk about this for a very, very long time because I've been <laughs> talking about it for 20 years. But, um, you know, one of the things I had struggled with this probably 15 years ago, and I sort of written a series, you know, effectively saying, you know, intellectual property is not intellectual property is not certainly not property. And I explored other phrases, including intellectual monopoly and a few other ones as well. Um, some people I've seen someone, people refer to it as imaginary property or, or things like that. And, and I, I sort of came to the conclusion eventually that, that, um, I, I wasn't comfortable with any of the alternatives either. And I do, I will admit that though I, I have problems with the concept of, of intellectual properties, intellectual property, and where I can, I try to name the specific areas like copyright patents and, and trademarks, which is a whole other area that I think that's a whole, that's a whole tangent that we don't need to go down yeah. right now. Um, uh, but um you know, I, I still do fall back on using intellectual property as a term, just as a uh, description of, of a bucket of, you know, these kinds of uh, of tools and rights. But I'm uncomfortable with it because because I don't like the property aspect of it, which, because I don't think it really is property. Yeah. Um, I mean, to a certain degree, that's, that's you know, just what we call it now. Um, yeah. And, and you, uh, you can't fight uh, language, or, or <laughs> yes. at least what can but one of us do. Um, 
Yeah, uh, Brink Lindsay uh, likes to describe uh, death tax as the second greatest branding move after calling <laughs> it intellectual property. And of course, like you know, in shorthand, I'll I'll call it IP because nobody right. would know what I'd say if I say I am. Um, but <laughs> right. if 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 I'm I'm really getting into it, uh, you know, into it uh, on a theoretical level, I will do my best uh, to substitute intellectual property with um, intellectual mono- uh, monopoly. In part because I think monopoly better. Um, yeah. describes it um, and and B you know when you assign property I'm I'm a very firm supporter of of uh, property rights and sort of yeah. the, the Lockean tradition uh, so you know property is a thing that's good and this is particularly resonates on the right um, and so to a certain degree it is uh, a decision on my part is like well here, here's a scary word monopoly um, that I think accurately describes the institution but I, I want to really drive the point home that what we've done is is created uh, through government you know, through a government grant of monopoly, this institution that not only doesn't reflect a natural right to property, but also actively interferes with it. Um, and this is not necessarily to say that you, you know, I mean, I'm certainly not opposed to uh, intellectual property in its entirety. I wouldn't go as far as, say, um, Bulger and right. Levine in, against intellectual monopoly. Um, but I think it's part of a general good governance problem, or rather, it's part of good governance uh, to not really hide the ball. Uh, I mean, we all remember from, I guess it was 10 years ago, that famous quote, get your government hands uh, off my Medicare. (laughs) Um, You know, there's a great book called The Submerged State, which talks about how government does all sorts of things, and we do not realize that it does those things. And so it creates this idea, um, uh, creates this idea that we are significantly less uh, independent. Um, And whether you can debate the merits of those individual policies, but I think it's, it's important for informed uh, debate about public policy that we recognize government is stepping in, is doing a thing. We can debate whether or not the consequences are good or whether or not government has a role to do it in the first place. But let's make sure everyone has a fuller understanding of what exactly is going on. Yeah, and I think that's key. And I, and I, I am in the same camp as you. And I, I agree with you on most of that where, um, you know, I, I think there is a role for these things but we have to be able to discuss them honestly and and calling them property or treating them as if they are traditional property rights in the same sense and referring to things like theft um i find very problematic because it's it distorts the debate and it doesn't get at the realities of these and and that is that this is some sort of you know government granted monopoly which is you know the, the most accurate people get very mad at me when i say that but these are government granted monopolies and they have trade offs right they have costs and benefits and we cannot accurately weigh those if we're pretending it is something that it is not um and so that's that's you know that's that's where i come from so i, I want to dig in a little bit on your paper um so you know you you know discuss you know basically what we've just been discussing somewhat um but then you also start to break it down and say that that um the the mismatch between intellectual property uh and I mean, as you put it here the rights of to fruits of one's labor are not necessary, not sufficient, and counterproductive. Do you want to dig in on, on what, where you guys were going with that? Sure. Uh, so from there, we essentially take two um, – in the paper, we take two approaches uh, to why we have – you know what, what justifies physical property in the first place. The first is sort of a, a, a Demsetzian – uh, internalizing externalities consequentialist argument, which is not to confuse, you know, consequentialist with more kind of a wonky utilitarian what, you know, what Mm -hmm. policies produce certain outcomes, but private property as an institution produces produces good outcomes. Intellectual property is like private property, therefore um, you know, we should grant property rights and and treat it as such. For that one, um, it's simply a category error. So the sort of the seminal paper um, on why property rights is good is written by uh, Harold Demsetz, and he talks about tribes living in uh, what is modern day Canada, and in the uh, in the days of the fur trapping industry, where they recognize that if it was just a virgin wilderness from which anyone could take uh, beaver pelts, then the beavers would be hunted to extinction, everyone would be left worst off. Uh, and so they divided up parcels of land, and that incentivized uh, those who had control of particular pieces of land uh, to manage the crop uh, or, or manage the population of beavers. Uh, so recent scholarship has seriously called into question the history behind that, but the general model is true. The problem with that particular argument is that 
uh, it, it completely ignores the nature of intellectual property. Um, mm. You know, uh, physical property is is non rivalrous. If I take a beaver pelt, that's a beaver pelt um, that you don't have. Uh, and you know, in in you know, sort of your uh, economics one hundred and one class, you would get the treatment of say national defense or, or you know public parks as as right. public as public goods in the technical sense, non rivalrous and non excludable. But even then, um, you can imagine you know stretching out into infinity. That there's a finite number of people that can fit on uh, the national mall, or you know right. a military could become so overextended that it can't protect anyone. But an idea is is arguably the only true public good. An infinite number of people uh, yep. can think the same thought, watch the same movie, everything like that um, at the same time. And as long as they are able to gain access to it, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to exclude without, of course, uh, government getting in the way. So that's the, the first area, the sort of the, the consequentialist case. Uh, additionally, Demsets uh, justifies it, and other economists have uh, done as well, on the grounds of sort of internalizing externalities that, you know, if, if you benefit from something that um, I, am, uh, I am doing, then I should be able to capture a certain amount of the gains that you, are ma- uh, that you receive from whatever the activity uh, I'm engaging in is, so that way I have an incentive to produce it. Now, this is true. Um, Niskanen Center, uh, our signature uh, issue, or at least our claim to fame, is um, when we deal with a negative externality in the terms of carbon emissions, and we're mm-hmm. very firm proponents of a carbon tax, but what everyone is talking about in innovation are positive externalities. Um, and so there, it's absolutely true that free riding could reduce the incentive to innovate if intellectual property is justified anywhere. It is absolutely in the case of uh, the pharmaceutical industry. Now, that's not to say that our current system is desirable. I, I have serious issues with it, um, but that but that is the case. But there are a lot of irrelevant externalities, um, and to say that innovators have to capture um, all or even most of the gains is is um, just not true. All that's necessary is that they are able to capture a sufficient amount of the return of the societal return for the investment uh, for them to keep uh, innovating. So if if I you know yeah. enjoy baking. You know, and people enjoy the smell of it. it. Will be ridiculous for me to charge people as they walk past because that doesn't uh, determine whether or not I'm going to bake. Yeah, and, and there's an interesting there's an interesting uh, way to look at at this point, which is that you know, copyright in particular, well, both copyright and patents, as sort of originally conceived in the U.S., are that these are economic rights, right? And and as such, they are designed to be an incentive to create. You know, so basically. You would not create this work of art or you would not create this invention um, if you didn't have the adequate incentives to do so. And so that is, you know, that is the, the basic thinking. And, you know, associated with that then is that if you are capturing more of the benefit than would take you to to uh, create that piece of artwork or to invent that invention, um, then then the the policy is somewhat misaligned. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and and so, but, you know, in today's, the way that, that a lot of people who look at these things as property look at it is that they should be collecting all of the the, the benefits of, of this invention or, or, you know, creative content. Yeah. Uh, so to, to move into uh, the physical property role, say I'm selling, uh, stick with the baking example, say I'm selling pies, um, to argue that in every... Uh, commercial uh, context, um, and a tremendous amount of creation happens uh, uh, because of motivations that are independent of commercial, or at least secondary to the commercial. So that's, I think, an important aside to make. But, you know, to argue that I need to capture all of the societal gains to do it is essentially an argument against consumer surplus, which is just silly. Um, uh, In addition to that, I think uh, the issue, the um, issue in terms of, of the gain, excuse me, uh, the issue that you look at when it comes to collecting the gains uh, from the surplus that you make is, like you said, when the institution exists to make sure that the upfront costs are covered, that inventors have a sufficient re- uh, are able to make a sufficient return on their investment. It's you're, what you are doing is subsidizing, and that's not to necessarily argue against any particular subsidy. You could think right. intellectual property protection needs to be expanded because we're dramatically under subsidizing this thing. I 
I certainly don't think that's the case, but one could argue that. Um, imagine you were building uh, really anything else that may, we may want to subsidy, and it cost a uh, billion dollars to achieve the socially optimum amount of whatever it is we're trying to subsidize, but we spend five or ten or even one point two billion. Well, that's you know four billion, nine billion, two hundred million dollars extra. So. If you are going to follow that argument, you need to calibrate it properly, and that means in our current context, uh, dramatically reducing copyright terms, uh, allowing uh, derivative works, uh, and dramatically expanding fair use uh, in the context of patents, um, undoing practices such as patent thicketing, uh, um, identifying them as anti-competitive practice, taking a closer look at non-practicing entities, and getting rid of patents that are overbroad and are, in terms of their creation, shockingly uninventive. Uh, yeah. The ones that come to mind are business method and software patents. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's a whole bunch of stuff there. I mean, you know, one of the arguments I've made with regards to patents is that, you know, p part of the framework of, of our existing patent system is that, you know, you're only supposed to get patents on, on things that are are new, uh, which is one part, but then also separately that it, that are non-obvious uh, and specifically not obvious to those who are skilled in the art uh, is, is the way it's framed. Um and um and i've always argued that you know in in patent law we don't they don't care about independent invention but they should oh yes <laughs> Be because so so much of of so many patent disputes are really about cases of independent invention. They had no idea that there was a patent on this um, and or you know multiple people sort of came up with the same thing at the same time um, and to me, like if you have independent invention, that suggests that those who are skilled in the that th this solution is perhaps obvious to those who are skilled in the art because multiple people are coming up with the same thing which suggests the nature of someone who is knowledgeable about these areas will come up with this particular solution and so i've always argued that if you're seeing independent invention that should be evidence that no patent should you know should issue in that area in the first place because it's it doesn't meet that standard of being non-obvious um, but yeah, exactly. nobody, nobody agrees with me on that. <laughs> no, well, well, I do, Mike. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, um, uh, the, yeah, so in our paper, we explicitly call for protection uh, for independent invention, be it either um, as an affirmative defense against infringement mm -hmm. or um, as a way to demonstrate, uh, or as a, you also get a patent. So there would be two or potentially yeah. more, depending on how much uh, independent invention is going on there. But the point you raise um, is a very interesting one is, well, if, if you know, perhaps if it's, if it's two, then we'll both give them the patent or we'll right. defend the, the second comer from an infringement claim. Um, but if a number of people are uh, coming up with this uh, idea, then perhaps we shouldn't um, be granting uh, this this patent in the first place. Uh, the sort of interesting idea is that there was a study that came out of the Federal Reserve of Philadelphia, um, I believe it's earlier this year, and they found uh, that I think from like 1998 to 2018 or some time period similar to that, um, in terms of claims of uh, simultaneous invention or people who made patent designs that are substantially similar, uh, the incidence of these, or you know, cases of patent infringement where the designs are substantially similar, um, the incidence of this happening dramatically increases uh, when people, you know, working on these similar inventions live closer together. So there's huh. a tremendous amount of, of knowledge spillover going on just because, you know, people meet at the same happy hour, maybe they date, right. or maybe, you know, whatever. There's a tremendous amount of information sharing um, that I think is underappreciated when we are discussing innovation policy um, more generally. People think, oh, you get a patent because you made some, you know, cosmic leap and you dramatically advanced science. Well, look at a couple of the patents. Their merits are questionable at best. Right. But even beyond that, so much of it is incremental um, and piecemeal. Yeah. Uh, in the case of the pharmaceutical industry, a tremendous amount of it is um, built on more basic research, whereas the comparative advantage of pharmaceutical companies is developing the actual product, bringing it into something um, that we can use in our lives. The analogy uh, I like to use for that is I was in Norway recently, um, and a friend of mine lives there, and he loves to go camping. And he told me that a tremendous amount of the the forest land where people go camping and hiking and everything like that in Norway is in fact privately owned. So if you did, you know, what people in Norway do all the time in the United States, uh, 
you would be doing you would be uh, trespassing. Um, right. But Norway has uh, a rule, and this, the other countries have this as well. But Norway is the example I know um, has a rule that's called right to roam, where as long as mm-hmm. you're not destroying the property, you're not putting up a factory or something like that, and you stay a certain distance uh, from land that is being worked or a residence or something like that, you can just um, move past. So I think uh, sort of what we're proposing is sort of a, a right to roam or a right to innovate in the style of right to roam, where um, we are opposed to we are perfectly fine restricting uh, commercial infringement. You shouldn't be able to make money um, off of someone's original design or work or you know something where you just make a, a de minimis change. So it's technically speaking um, not identical. But for non-commercial purposes, uh, derivative works in general, uh, we need to recognize the borrowing that is mm-hmm. so inherent um, in innovation and, and celebrate that and design a system around that. Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. It it brings to mind this is a slightly separate area, but another area that I've written a lot about and have thought a lot about, and I think is actually very much analogous. Which is there are all these studies, um, uh, and you may have come across this as well in, in your other work too, about um, like the role of non compete agreements uh, in terms of innovation, um, and. I, the, the idea that, like what you said at the beginning of what you were talking about, where um, the study saying like big, you know, multiple patents in, in like similar geographical region where there's sort of something in the air. The, there were these studies that said, you know, one of the reasons why Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley was because California doesn't um, enforce non-compete agreements based on like a, a, a reading, a judicial reading of um like the California business code of like 1880 something. I forget exactly what it was, but it basically says that everybody has a right to make a living um, and you can't block their right to make a living. And therefore non-competes have been ruled to be unenforceable, even if you sign them in, in California. And there were all these studies that sort of tried to show that, you know, um, why why that helped create silicon valley and and so there was like a there was a book that compared silicon valley to boston in massachusetts non-competes are totally enforceable and that one found that um you know people moved around a lot they did a lot more job hopping in california in massachusetts in the tech industry people sort of took a job and sort of stuck with it um and so there was just this uh, the original theory was effectively like oh you know people are it's more like west coast versus east coast attitudes and culture uh and so more just general sharing of information um and then there was like an economist who looked more specifically at like the non-compete agreement and and ran various regressions or whatever and sort of narrowed it down to like very much like so much of of california's innovations because of the lack of non-competes yeah and then there there was like the 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 sort of third study in the batch which was uh somebody had looked at detroit because michigan uh for many years had the same thing as california where non-competes were not enforceable and then they switched in the early 80s um and if you look at sort of the rise and fall of the auto industry it taxed pretty closely to when they made that switch uh and you can see that like they studied like the movement of of engineers uh, you know, in the auto companies. And they, it basically stops right after they make this change. Before that, people would sort of bounce back and forth between all the car companies. And, you know, the interesting, so some people focus very much just on the on this, like, okay, the jobs, you know, and, and non-competes. But, you know, what's really happening behind the scenes is this idea of, like, being able to share information and discuss. And the big breakthroughs that that make a big difference seem to come from when you can share these ideas and someone can take a little piece of this and a little piece of that and put it together in a way that that makes the big breakthroughs that then creates all of this surplus that allows everybody else to sort of build amazing things whether you know out here in silicon valley it's like you know what we're named for right i mean the the <laughs> the, the, the the semiconductors and everything uh you know that come about because people were sort of sharing these ideas rather than hoarding them yeah, it's it's the general idea that information should be shared. Um, if it, you know, not information wants to be free, and I'm certainly not advocating uh, for corporate espionage or something right. like that. But by the fact that it is 
non-rivalrous and anyone can use it right. without taking it from anyone else what you're you're denying is not um, a, a, a right to something you are not making anyone worse off but rather uh, what you're taking away is a competitive advantage that that I would argue um, is is unfair there's an interesting argument um, that I've come across uh, when I was drafting the paper and, and just in general talking about intellectual property um, and it's it's couched in Pareto terms you know something is Pareto efficient when it's impossible uh, to make someone better off without making someone else worse off and people right. justify intellectual property by saying aha so we have uh, you know a universe of all the goods then somebody comes up with a new idea something that didn't exist at all before so we give them uh, a patent or I'd call it a monopoly on it um, and you haven't made anybody worse off because the alternative was a universe um, where that thing didn't exist at all and I will say that a universe where uh, only Jeff Bezos can afford <laughs> a certain drug, uh, or I guess now his, his uh, ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife, I'm not sure. I haven't tracked the proceedings closely. Yeah. Um, you know, where only the, the ultra-rich can you know, afford a particular drug. Yes, I would say it is strictly preferable to a universe um, where the drug doesn't exist at all, but there are a couple problems with it. Number one, yes, that is an interesting observation you've made about it, uh, how, you know, where only one person can get it is preferable to a world where no people can get it, um, but you haven't done the work to show that you have a property right, uh, be it in a lock and dessert claim or, you know, in a Demsetsian sense. But the other thing is that using the same Pareto logic, uh, you can also easily show that... Um, you know, in, in infringement is all, or you know, using uh, what you know what would otherwise be covered by a grant of intellectual uh, monopoly is in fact uh, Pareto efficient. You know, I you will I think you use a CCL on your blog. Uh, so this isn't a great example, but I take a post from yours um, and then I, I share it. I do what you know. I I infringe upon you. Will you still have? the post, and now I have a post. I have not made you any worse off, but I have made myself better off. So the Pareto logic cuts both ways. Right. The only thing I have hurt is your competitive advantage, is your ability to collect rents. But that's not what property rights are about. Property right. rights are about protecting uh, what you have worked for, what you have exchanged for, things like that. If you know, if I uh, open a men's warehouse uh, and I only got navy suits, and all of a sudden navy starts going out of style, and you know my my entire stock becomes worthless, that's very unfortunate to me. And I'm, I'm not saying government should get involved in the suit industry, um, <laughs> but and like maybe we should subsidize me, or we should have a safety net to make sure that you know people can take risks like that and they're still covered you know they're not living on the street but nobody would say that my property rights have been violated in that instance and that's right. the exact same or, or uh, even thing. right i mean even even you know make the argument that like you open a, a men's warehouse that only has you know navy suits and somebody opens up a, a, a you know another suit store across the street that has more variety and then they are taking business from you is that is that a violation of your property rights of course not Right? Yeah, exactly. And 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 yet, you know, in theory they have they have copied your idea in that they are selling suits, you know, but they they have innovated, right? They've made something that's more competitive. And then, like my argument at least is like, okay, it, you know, this is a competitive market. If you're only selling navy suits and they are no longer in style, it's, it's your job to figure out, you know, what you should sell to keep in business. Um and that's not a property rights issue, it's a marketing issue or a business issue, right? Yes, exactly. And that's the problem uh, and I guess that leads to the sort of second class of arguments we do deal with um, is sort of a, a Lockean dessert claim um, you know that's uh, uh, most uh, forcefully made um, by you know of all people Ayn Rand well all of her arguments are forcefully made um, <laughs> yeah. you know where she says it's the representation of the products you know of your mind uh, right. that is true but there's all sorts of creativity um, that goes unpatented that you know you intentionally forego copyright heck that's what you do when you publish under a CCL um, right. uh, that uh, forgoes those <clears throat> and and just just for for clarification purposes since you brought it up we actually don't we we have uh, chosen uh, deliberately though perhaps stupidly um, we do not officially put our tech turret under a, a CC license um, we have regularly stated that we consider anything that we post on TechTurt to be in the public domain that anyone can use um, and part of our reasoning that nobody gets <laughs> our reason to not use, specifically use the CCL or the, the CC0 uh, dedication is that uh, it sort of reinforces this idea that you need 
to to have licenses and permission in every single case. And so we would like to encourage situations where we can just say like, this is use it. This is our content. We're putting it out there for you to use in any way you want. And we are, you know, uh, waiving any any sort of rights we might claim to it, um, which is always leads to fun discussions when someone tries to to pull a gotcha on us and say like, well, how would you like it if I just copied all the posts on Tector? And it's like, uh, go for it. I mean, like, <laughs> cool, you know, and it's like, and they're like, well, you know, what if I got all your traffic and all of your ad revenue? It's like, okay, well, um, if you're doing that, like, that would be interesting because then we could learn why you're getting the traffic and we're not. And hopefully yeah. that allows us to improve ourselves. And also like, you know, for us at least, this is a very, you know, specific detector kind of situation where it's like, we have a community. That community doesn't follow you automatically. If you're just copying all of our content, they're probably going to figure out that it comes from us originally and probably going to want to stick with the source. Uh, and, and we should cultivate that aspect of it. So you can copy the content, but what good does that really do you? Yeah, anyways, exactly. Um, no, that's uh, well. Made, oh, now I feel silly. Um, and <laughs> and uh, uh, wimpy. That captured economy only uses a CCL. Um, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, in most cases that makes sense. Yeah, know, I, we're, I guess. We're, um, we're out there. I guess even though you know we would have no issue uh, with anyone using our content for really anything. I mean, perhaps attribute us, um, but uh, but. Yeah, the the CCL. It, I guess it's part of our spirit of moderation, where we're not wholesale opposed to the institution of intellectual property, right. um, but uh, we, you know, we're trying to tone it back because we want people to read our stuff. Yeah. Oh, how would you feel if you know I just handed out pamphlets on the streets? Promise. Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, um, but sort of going back to the dessert claim, yes, it is, is the product of your mind, and one would argue that in a lot of cases you would want more people to experience it, want more people to share it, uh, because there are, uh, you know, a lot of people in the engineering world, um, in Hollywood, they, they do it for glory. They, they do it for notoriety. Um, I mean, um, psychologists uh, will, will spend years analyzing what is going on in Elon Musk's head. Uh, but, you know, Tesla, I believe in um, 2014, uh, they released all their patents um, because Musk, say, say what you will about him, um, but, but he's on a mission. Uh, it's a motivation that, if not completely independent from the finance, um, there, there's something, or the in, motivation that's not completely uh, independent from the financial, there's definitely something else going on there that's beyond just collecting an above-market yeah, and- return. And, 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 and this actually gets to a larger point that I actually think is, is really worth calling out specifically, which is that, you know, and, and you know, sometimes when, when I talk about intellectual property stuff and, and copyright and patents, like people accuse me of being like, you know, like, you know, sort of hippie, you know, give it away, freedom, whatever. And, and I, I am, I am not, <laughs> I, I'm arguing something very, very different. And, and it sort of, you know, it comes to light very much in sort of the Musk example, which is like doing this can often create much bigger opportunities, right? It's a question of which, which, which pie you're capturing a slice of and how much of that pie you're capturing, right? So like if you can create a much bigger pie that, that you don't need to capture the entire slice of, you can capture a small slice, but at a much bigger, if the pie is much bigger, you, you know, a small slice can be much more valuable to you. I mean, that is to some extent what, what Musk is thinking, Like right? He could protect all those patents and sort of limit it so that only Tesla can use those things. But he has recognized that if the overall market for uh, electric vehicles is much bigger and the infrastructure to support that is much bigger. That only expands his own market. And he has something else to sell, which are the cars um, that creates all of these opportunities. And, and, you know, it's the same thing with like, you know, content, like where you're saying, like, you want the content spread and I want our content spread because I think that opens up more opportunities for me, right? The more people who read my content, the more people who are aware of my content, that opens up new future opportunities for me. And and some of those could be could be a lot more lucrative than having to license, you know, each, you know, individual blog post that somebody wants to share somewhere else, right? Precisely. Um, you could imagine scenarios of musicians who, you know, don't own or co-own or whatever, a production studio where 
there, they make significantly more money on tour um, than they do from royalties or something like that. Now, sure. this varies case to case. Um, yeah. but if, there are all sorts of differences, yeah. Yeah, um, but if you are one of those musicians uh, uh, for, for whom the case is that you make far more money on tour or signing autographs or doing whatever um, than you would from the royalties, uh, you have a very strong incentive uh, to forego copyright uh, protection entirely because more people will hear it, more people will discover you, um, more people will get interest, and of course you could sell them an overpriced t-shirt. Um, but there are other opportunities for you to make money, and that's assuming that your motive is purely financial. If you're in it for the fame or you're in it because you've got a point to make and you just want people to hear it, these are other reasons to create independent and sometimes in conflict uh, with the financial. Um, and if the purpose is to promote the progress of science and the useful arts, uh, these are instances where intellectual monopoly actively hinders uh, yeah. the constitutionally stated goal. It's one of the few clauses in the Constitution that actually contains a justification. Congress doesn't, you know, the Constitution doesn't say why we need a post office or why necessarily we need to go lower, but it uh, go to war. But it does explain why we're going to have uh, limited rights to the creators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I, I I did want to bring up one thing because I I had mentioned this this to you uh, prior to the podcast but but um, you know when we're talking about the sort of using copyrights and patents as the incentive to create um, there's this great and and this is also a, a recognition of how these debates have gone on for centuries <laughs> uh, uh, and I've talked about this on Tector before but but uh, Thomas Macaulay who was a, a a parliamentarian in the UK in 1841. So, so we're pushing what 180 years practically. Uh, they were debating copyright term extension, uh, and he gave this wonderful speech, which I've pointed to in the past. But the the one line that is always worth remembering, where he he, he was talking about, you know, and he refers to it as a as a monopoly, uh, and and he makes this argument so concise and I, I love it. So I'm just going to read it right now, which is, uh, it is good that authors should be remunerated. I can't pronounce that right, but, uh, <laughs> and the least exceptional way of remuneration, then, uh, remunerating them is by a monopoly yet monopoly is an evil for the sake of the good. We must submit to, to the evil, but the evil ought not last a day longer than is necessary for the purpose of securing the good. Um, and so there are a couple different elements in that, in that line that I think are really important, which is like just recognizing there are trade-offs, right? It was like one of the most fundamental concepts in economics, right? Everything has a trade-off. And so much of the discussion around copyright and patents in particular seem to assume that there are no trade-offs involved, uh, which, which bothers me as well. But here he's, he's recognizing there are trade-offs and that, you know, the incentive should only be enough to incentivize the creation of this. I, I also, I do take issue with his idea that, that, uh, um, the what was what did I say the uh, uh, the most uh, the least exceptional way of remunerating them is through this this monopoly because I think that's not true in a lot of cases in some cases it might be right and I think that's worth exploring and figuring out which cases do we need these things in but the the working assumption that we seem to go on with copyright especially copyright and patents to a large extent is that it is needed in all cases for creation and invention and that's that's part of the problem yeah and of, of course um, I uh, you know I, I don't want people who produce some of my favorite works and even those who produce some of my least favorite work uh, <laughs> to necessarily go hungry because people just blatantly copied. Um, we could, yep. you know, in, the, in our paper, we come out against uh, such just blatant commercial infringement. Um, we, we borrow from Locke, uh, you know, saying uh, because they are just profiting from their pains, which they have no right to do. Uh, there's no productive labor on their end. But even then, uh, so in, in the paper, we say, um, you know, you know, uh, George R. R. Martin should probably have the rights to not just obviously his books, uh, but also the Game of Thrones series. Uh, although even then, I'm very much on, the, that's our institutional position, I'm personally very much on the fence about it um, for two reasons. Number one, um, I'm a huge fan of the show Made in the High Castle, and I'm very excited for season four. I'm, 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 I hope they stick the landing. I'm worried, but I'm very excited <laughs> nonetheless. Um, and the, if you've read the book, the show and the book are really quite different in their structure. They have some of the same characters, although I think, and a lot of fans agree, two of the best characters in the show uh, aren't in the book at all. Um, and the plot is very different. A lot of what happens 
um, is is uh, uh, is different. And to the extent that plots elements match up, it's almost done as like a wink and a nod to you know fans mm. of the book. Like, aha, this happened, but it's an entirely different context, an entirely different point of the story. Um, but so, a there's a tremendous amount of creative input that goes that is separate from the essential idea of not just what if the Nazis won the war, but also what if the Nazis won the war. And there's Juliana Crane and all these other folks. Um, but and we should reward them for that and not have to have them go begging to the Philip K. Dick estate. Um, but the second <laughs> one is uh, is that imagine the book sales of Man in the High Castle after it came yeah. out, um, or the Game of Thrones books, and now George R. R. Martin's audience uh, has dramatically expanded yeah. um, for you know not just all the other content, but for the books themselves. Whenever they come out, uh, and you, you know you could look at book sales after the show was announced. So uh, in terms of the the pure remunera- remuneration content. If Martin decided, nope, I, I don't want to license the show, uh, or, or, or you know, he charged an unreasonable fee, he could have potentially shot himself in the foot in that regard. Now, that's a very specific cost-benefit question that varies uh, entirely depending on the show or the book or whatever. But I, even though I'm perfectly fine in terms of policies that I would advocate for, you know, giving them the rights uh, to something as, as direct as that, um, I'm still very much on the fence um, about it. But broadly speaking, we call yeah. for a, a dramatic rollback of our current IP system. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's an interesting element there, which is like, um, you know, th- there's a sort of comparison situation um, where I, I would argue there may be a case, and, and again, there are specifics, and, and this is just all speculation, right? But there may be cases where you could get the same kind of result without an intellectual property regime. I'm, I'm again not saying that is the right way to do it, but like you know, when you're talking about derivative works of things, um, you know, we do have something of an example of that in uh, like movies or television shows that are based on true stories. Um, yeah. Because a true and factual story does not, you don't need to license it if it is factual. And yet, many producers still will. Um, and for a variety of good reasons. One is that if you don't, uh, you know, people will get mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and so there's, there's a reason to, you know, if somebody writes a book or a news article about it, you often do want to license it. Or if it's somebody's actual life, you want them to be a consultant on the, on the film or movie or, 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 or um, you know, TV documentary, whatever it is, so that you can get a more accurate picture and you can get all this, you know, their insights into it. And therefore it is reasonable to work out a license, even if, it is not, you know, particularly required by by an intellectual property regime. Um, and then you're right that there are other sort of downside benefits as, as well. Yeah. Uh, um, and and the idea that people, uh, will, you know, people will react to people getting mad, not just necessarily the fact that people would boycott your movie um, or something like that, but. I think when you uh, talk to folks or, or listen to folks um, that are deeply concerned about infringement, well, it's not infringement to them, it's theft, uh, and they will remind you of it. Um, yes. But I think it is overblown. Number one, not the all the discussions we've made about a non-rivalrous good, uh, I think you like to call it an infinite good, uh, yep. which is super cool. Uh, just, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, it's just a fun uh, phrase to use. Um, but uh, I think that infringement, or that infringement in kind of the context of like illegally downloading songs or something like that, in addition to the fact that it's, oh no, someone's quote unquote stole from the Beatles. How will Paul McCartney manage the payments <laughs> on his third beach house? It's, it really is like that, um, that clip from the South Park episode um, where not a big deal. And then they go through these celebrities saying, oh, they'll have to downgrade the, the size of their private jets and everything <laughs> like that. But even then, um, if, if uh, you haven't read the, the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson, it's, it's excellent. Um, they're talking about the creation of iTunes, and this is in the wake of Napster. And they said, people don't really want to steal. There's a basic fairness yep. uh, component to it. And, and, you know, people, you know, people like to give, you know, just a dollar to charity or something like that because it makes them feel good. Well, maybe they'll give, you know, 99 cents to their favorite artist because it makes them feel good. So in those contexts, um, I think even if we dramatically roll back the protections of intellectual property and it restricted it only to commercial 
um, infringement, uh, that yeah. there would still be plenty of people buying from legitimate sources uh, for a variety of reasons. And this all goes back to you know what you were saying earlier. There are all sorts of assumptions uh, that plague our current intellectual property debate and, um, that simply aren't true or must be proven. And what I just hope to do with this paper uh, and in, in, in future works um, is to flip the script and force people to justify uh, the most unnatural of rights. Uh, yeah. You know, this this grant of monopoly the same way, and, and as someone who very much identifies with the political right uh, and is certainly dismayed with its current state, but very much identifies <laughs> uh, as, as someone on the political right, you know, I'm deeply skeptical of government subsidies and government intervention. I'm not categorically opposed by any means, but you need to show me a good reason um, that we're going to intervene. And when it poses such a direct threat to someone's property rights as, as traditionally and I believe correctly understood, you need a damn good reason. Um, I think yeah. the, in addition to the sort of mousetrap, some of my parts become someone else's whole uh, example, I think the, the one that affects everybody are uh, locks uh, and the protections that they are granted under DMCA. And yeah. it's, it's just in addition to the fact that there are very real costs, not just for you and I when we go to get our phone fix, but also to, to farmers who have, um, you know, who are really pushing for various right to repair bills that are in a few states, but unfortunately haven't really gone anywhere. Um, you know, if it, it, it's perfectly fine for me to set my car on fire, uh, well, maybe, you know, the, the local authorities will have some concerns, but it's perfectly <laughs> fine for me to destroy my property. But the second yeah. I try to, to break, uh, uh, you know, a, a lock, I'm violating copyright law. It's it's it, I just find it, you know, silly and absurd, and it's unfortunate that it has these tremendous real-world consequences. It not only does it make uh, things more expensive for people uh, who have been, you know, uh, really hurt by such regressive regulations, but we're also sending a tremendous amount of money um, to the top to people who don't deserve it. The you know the the term economic rents you know comes from yeah. what is traditionally seen as unproductive labor. Now, depending on who you talk to, rents uh, could could mean something else, and there's a more benign definition of the term. But we we really need to go. Um, after, if we're concerned about inequality, we need to start questioning, you know, before we start moving to wealth taxes and everything like that, well, why is this the case? How did Disney become so extraordinarily large and powerful? Well, it's because Mickey Mouse uh, was has been successfully kept out of the public domain for a while, and they control all of these derivative works. And yeah, they have produced some good movies, but they have just such a tremendous empire that is based on uh, a, a property right that doesn't exist. Um, so it's, it's you know, when we're talking about antitrust and wealth taxes and everything like that, uh, you know, let's say these are all good ideas. I'm looking more at, at uh, the prevention side of the equation. Well, how did these companies become so big? Why did these situations emerge? And a lot of it is because of regulation in what we're talking about today, the form of intellectual property. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think there there's... There are a whole bunch of areas to explore there, but uh, we have also gone on for, for, for a while, and I could go on for much longer, which also means that I will have to have you back on the podcast in the future. Um, but uh, if you are enjoying this conversation, you should definitely first uh, read uh, the, the, the paper, uh, Why Intellectual Property is a Misnomer, uh, and then also follow Daniel uh, all over the place. You're, you're on Twitter, and you... Uh, I'm suddenly blanking. It's captured economy. Or yes, the the Twitter is, the Twitter is at uh, captured econ. Just search the captured economy, and then I'm uh, Daniel Takish. Yep, uh, perfect. And this was a, a really fun discussion. As I said, we'll, we'll definitely have you back on, especially as you're exploring this, the, these areas more deeply. Um, and uh, we could keep talking to you for a very long time, but I don't know how much longer people will listen. <laughs> <laughs> well, well uh, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I've enjoyed myself tremendously as well, and I uh, uh, look forward to coming back again. Cool. That's great. And uh, to everyone who's listening, uh, thanks so much, and we'll be back next week. Take care. Take care.